But we're going to uh, finish finish the series today. Um, I, I should just say, as Kerry prayed, uh, Jenny and I are going on holidays in a couple of weeks, so this will actually be my last Sunday at Mafra until August. We get back on August the 20th, so we're <coughs> flying out to England on July the 24th to go and visit our daughter and her husband and grand- our grandchildren, so that'll be good fun. Um, so... Um, I'll be here during the week at various points, but I won't be back on Sunday for a little while. So um, if ever you feel you need to ring me, you know, I do have a telephone, right? And I'm always open to emails as well, so don't ever feel um, you you can't contact me that way. But I'll be back on Tuesday and trying to get around a few people, and I'll probably be back the week after as well. So if you'd like a visit, let me know. But... We need to turn to the book of Ephesians, and so if you turn up to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, I'd just like to tie a few thoughts together. Um, There's an outline for this on your bulletin, if if you'd find that helpful, but please keep your Bibles open. Um, Ephesians is a book which in just a few chapters lays out a very big picture and an exalted picture of God's plan for his church. Uh, what God intends to do through it. I want to skip through a few line points in chapters 2 and 3 before we have a more careful think about chapter 4. So go to chapter 2, verse 1. So Paul's writing to people that have put their trust in Jesus. So we, we can assume that the people reading this in the first instance are Christians. But he reminds them of where they've come from. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So that's their prior condition. It's not a pretty picture, but literally that's the case. That's where we've come from. Uh, When Jesus was asked by Nicodemus how he could enter the kingdom, Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus didn't understand him, but what does it mean to be born again? It means that you've been spiritually enlivened because our spiritual condition is we're dead. We're unable to relate to the God who made us and the God we will meet in judgment one day. And so if nothing happens to our heart, then we're in a perilous situation. And so Paul makes it very plain. You were dead in your deliberate choice to stray off the path of goodness and righteousness in your many shortcomings. That was the characteristic, that was their lifestyle. They walked in that manner of life. But down to verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. I think of all the phrases in the Bible, God being rich in mercy is one, it'll be in my top ten favourite. Underline it, meditate on it. That's who God is. God is rich in mercy. In other words, he doesn't deal out to us what we deserve. He withholds his judgement from us for the sake of his son. But he's not grudging in mercy, not like us. God is rich in mercy. His mercy overflows. Now, this is something, you know, look, it should stir us to pray and, and praise, but that's who God is. He's rich in mercy. Um, with the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. Now, Paul continues that theme, but down in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. So notice that word walk again. We've talked about this before, but the walk is, is it's a picturesque way of describing the manner in which you live. Your walk. It's your lifestyle. We once had a lifestyle that was characteristic of people that were dead, spiritually. Now we've been made alive and our characteristic way of life ought to be a living way. So we've been saved by grace through faith. God is merciful. God is gracious. He withholds his wrath. He gives us things we don't deserve. Uh, and all this is by way of his gift to us. But there's a, an accompanying lifestyle that needs to go with it. And that is the lifestyle of good works which God has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So that's who we were and where we've come from. But we've been joined together with others. And so down to verse 11, Paul addresses his remarks to Gentiles, people who weren't ethnically Jewish, who weren't religiously Jewish. And probably the vast number of people in the church in Ephesus were not Jews. And so how did Jews and Gentiles worship together, given all that they believed about each other? Gentiles thought Jews were weird and evil. Jews thought Gentiles were just beyond the pale Uh, how do they come together well Paul says that Gentiles were in verse 12 they were once separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world so that's a big problem how does God solve it through Jesus verse 14 he himself is our peace who made us both one verses 15 to 16 that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility so the ancient hostility that divided Jews from every other nation on earth has now been put to death through Jesus reconciliation even across the barriers of the most entrenched human hatreds can be put aside through Jesus now notice there in verse 16 Jesus reconciles us both both Jew and Gentile to God in one body now that's his body one thing that we all have in common this morning if we've put our trust in Jesus is that one saviour shed his blood for us so that makes you powerfully joined to others for whom he did that doesn't it that's the basis of our unity i was dead in my transgressions and sins and so were you god in his mercy sent jesus who died on the cross so that i could be forgiven and so you could be forgiven so we've got a couple of things in common we were both desperately in need and god was equally generous to us both so how should that make us look at each other? Am I more saved than you? Am I less saved than you? Has God been more generous to me or to you? No. We were saved by one body. One particular act. Jesus in his body on the cross has eliminated the animosity, the hostility, those ancient Uh, tribal uh, warfare elements he's done it for them and he's done it for us 
And so, verses 21 to 22, Paul teases out the implications of this. He's talking to people who are in the church in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we're not a collection of atoms, each existing independently of the other. We've been made members of God's family. So Ephesians talks about how we become members of God's household. That's another way of saying his family. Because we share one father who sent his son to pay the same price for each of us. That's the basis of our unity. We all have that in common. To rebel against Christian unity is to rebel against the foundation that God's put in place. But to express that unity is to take our part and our place in the work that God is doing in the world. What's he doing? He's building a new community. He's building a new community of people that are not divided by race or place, but people who have come together and found their common cause in being forgiven by Jesus and made into something new and being turned into a dwelling place for God. Now that's an extraordinarily important idea. Right throughout the Bible story you see God wanting to live with people. So in the Garden of Eden, before we learn that Adam and Eve had sinned dreadfully, we, we hear that God has been walking in, the, in the, the garden in the cool of the evening. God and his people working together, walking together, living together. That's the picture of what God wants for his human creation. So in Exodus 29, after God's rescued his people out of Egypt to take them into the promised land, he makes this commitment to them. He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. Imagine that. Imagine God living in the middle of his people. Can you imagine that? That's what we're aiming for. That's, that's the, the picture that the Bible ends with in the book of Revelation. God living with his people forever. Now what Paul's telling us here in Ephesians chapter 2 is that if we're a dwelling place for God, it's not, not the building but us. We're the temple. Because God by his spirit is living in each one of us and when we come together in a special way, God is present with us. Do you believe that? Would it help if we, worked, if we, we met in a grander building? Would that help? Would it help if we had stained glass windows and an impressive choir and, 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 and a huge orchestra? Would that help? No. I've gathered with Christians in Africa who met under a few sheets of iron with, with sticks to hold them up. And the gathering was intense and genuine and real and God was there. The material prosperity, the, the material uh, attributes is not instrumental in what God can do with his people when they're committed to him. We have all of these things working for our advantage. Jesus died, he shed his blood for you and for me. That makes you and me brothers and sisters. We're family with God as our father. And God says, I will live with my people. And we're being built into a temple. The temple in Jerusalem was meant to be a symbol of what it looked like when God lived among his people. The temple was destroyed, but God said, I'll be their sanctuary wherever they go. I'll be their temple. I'll be their safe place. So here we are today. We don't need bricks and mortar to be the people of God because God is living among us. And so down to chapter 3, verse 6. Paul talks about a mystery, something that up until now hadn't been known, but now he's making it clear. 
This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, to be an heir means we've inherited. Paul's talked about the riches of God's glorious inheritance in chapter 1. Right? You are an heir. In the bank vaults of heaven, there is treasure laid up for you. But it's, it's something that we share with each other. And so the Gentiles and the Jews are no more and no less inheritors of these wonderful privileges and promises. They're partakers of the promise, members of the same body. So verse 7 of chapter 3, Paul describes his mission. He's been given grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. I wasn't there when the United Nations was formed, uh, but you all know about the United Nations. It was the great hope of people after the Second World War that if we could form this international coalition, war would not no longer be necessary. How's it working? What's the problem? We had some friends last night for tea and, and we were talking about the conflicts in the world and they said, what's the problem? Why do people keep doing this? Because it never works, does it? Right? Whatever happens in Ukraine, whoever wins that conflict will have an enormous damage bill to repair. Uh, it's going to take decades before they'll repair. Why do, you keep, why do people keep doing it? It's because the deep sinfulness of human nature and because people cling on to these ancient rivalries and will not let them go. The only hope for reconciliation is in the gospel of Jesus. When people come to this realisation that one God sent one son to die for all. And that's where reconciliation comes. And so because the church is the model of what God's going to do across the whole creation one day, Paul says this is a mystery by which God is revealing his wisdom to an audience in the spiritual realm. The angels and the demons are looking on in wonder when God's people live in unity because it doesn't happen anywhere else. And it must happen in churches. And if it doesn't, it's a disgrace. Now, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. Um, he's a, a recovered alcoholic. He used to go to AA. Uh, he got over his drinking problem uh, and then he became a Christian. Um, he didn't become a Christian and then quit drinking. He, be, he be quit, quit drinking and then became a Christian. But he said to me, and this is tragic, he said, I've actually sometimes, re- I've, I've, I've benefited more, f- f- I've, I've experienced more love in AA than I sometimes do in churches. That is a tragedy. It's a disgrace. If churches are known more for their judgmentalism and their hard-heartedness and their determination to stick up for such minute pieces of doctrine that you never know if you're going to be okay or not, and if they give way to, to an unloving spirit, that's a disgrace. And if he needs to go to AA, now he's a very regular church attender and he has experienced love in church, but it's, it's a warning to us all. It's a warning to us all because these, these things are our privileges and we need to give expression to them, which is where we get to in chapter 4. So have a look at chapter 4, let's read it. So with all of those things in mind, uh, God's withheld nothing, he's given us everything, he's rich in mercy, he's endlessly generous. With all of that in mind... Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner 
worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the works of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes rather, speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now I just want to work our way through that and think about a few things. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Why did Paul have to tell us he was a prisoner? It's hard to tell, he doesn't actually explain it. Uh, I don't think he's looking for sympathy, but it does tell us that when you're walking with Jesus it might take you to unusual places. But that's not a reason to quit. So Paul's writing from prison, probably in Rome, and he's telling the Ephesians that they need to give evidence of the change that's happened in them by the way that they live. So he pleads with them, he urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now what does that mean? Now who's been watching the cricket over the last couple of weeks? Is anybody aware that there's been some controversy coming out of England and and the cricket, right? Now quite apart from whether the batsman was out a lot of the controversies hinged on the way the Australian players were treated when they walked back to the change rooms and had to walk through the long room of Lords. Now if you know anything about cricket you'll realise that Lords, the ground in London is the home of cricket and to become a member of Lords and get you in that room I think it costs something like $80,000 a year. Now, not many of us are going to be able to stump up that kind of cash to be, and you, the waiting list is very long too. But part of being a member of Lords and knowing that both teams are going to walk through the long room before they get out onto the ground, part of being a member and having that privilege is behaving in the right way. And so if you're going to have the opposition team walking through you, You've got to behave towards them in a way that brings no disgrace on the Marylebone Cricket Club, who are the custodians of all that cricket means. And so when those men stood and abused the Australians and swore at them and called them awful names and even tried to trip them over, people who care about cricket and people who care about the club should have been outraged because that's not appropriate. It's not behaviour which is worthy of being a member of Lords. Do you get it? 
And so they've disciplined some of them. They've suspended them and that's probably appropriate. Because if the visiting team has to go through it at the risk of being tripped, that's not really very fair. Christians are called to walk worthily of all the privileges that we've received. We didn't pay a cent for our membership of the body of Christ. We don't have to pay an annual subscription. We've been paid for. We've been bought by Jesus. But when we've been bought by Jesus, that adds us to his family. And his family is known as the church in various locations around the world. We're the temple of God, we're the body of Christ, we're the family of God and it comes with privileges and it comes with responsibilities. And so Paul says, walk in a manner worthy. Members of the Melbourne Cricket Club are told how they need to dress before you can go into the members at the MCG. And if you offend those dress codes, you're tossed out. Members of the Church of Christ, we're not told what to wear, but we're told how to live. And there's a manner of life which is worthy of all that God's done for us through Jesus. And so we find a list of things here with all humility and gentleness. So Christians need to be humble. Christians need to look for opportunities to put others ahead of themselves. Christians need to be gentle. In other words, not harsh, not intolerant, not domineering. Christians need to be people, according to verse 2, of patience. Now, an old-fashioned way of saying that is long-suffering. So in other words, putting up with things, bearing with one another in love. Now elsewhere, Paul makes a distinction in the book of Colossians between forgiving and forbearing. If you've been offended against, the Christian way is to forgive. But forbearance means putting up with things that don't actually need to be forgiven. Forbearance means just putting up with the fact that not everybody's like you. Now... We all have people that we like to be with, don't we? There's people that are more or less easy to be our friends. But in church, we're not... We're put together with a whole bunch of people who are different from us and it's our responsibility to behave towards them in a godly way, in a way which is worthy of the fact that Jesus has paid for us all. So there'll be some people that you find more congenial company. There'll be some people in whom, with whom you have more perhaps in common. But it doesn't mean that gives you an excuse to just ignore the rest. We're meant to put up with each other. So there'll be aspects of me that you find irritating. Well, forbear, please. (laughs) That's, That's life. But if we decide we're going to separate every time somebody rubs us up slightly the wrong way, we're going to be fractured. So forbearance is a big thing, just putting up with each other at times. That's how families work. You just sometimes have to learn to put up with things. If you want to stay married, you've got to put up with things. (laughs) That's what Jenny tells me. (laughs) Number three, verse three. We've got to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, we, we need to be enthusiasts for unity. Now, the the history of the Christian church is marked by division. And every branch of the church, it doesn't matter whether you're evangelical, Catholic, Protestant, whatever, everybody's good at dividing, getting on their high horse and getting out of there. Paul says, a manner of life worthy of all we've inherited through Jesus 
is going to be marked by an eagerness to maintain unity. Now, notice that it's maintained. We've already got the unity. The unity's built in because we've been saved through one body. So the thing that makes me a Christian is the same thing that makes you a Christian. Jesus died for our sins, and that's the basis of our unity. So we've got to maintain that. And it's unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, we talk about home maintenance, don't we? Right? What's, what's home maintenance? It's when you've got a home, the homes are given, but you do what it takes to make sure that the home lasts longer. Now, I did a funeral a few weeks ago, and one of the eulogies for the deceased told us that he was a man who was very active in home maintenance. He painted a wall of his weatherboard house every year, the exterior walls. So he had this cyclic maintenance program. He would paint the north wall and then the, the next... And round he'd go every year, new wall. And that was his way of just keeping on top of the job of keeping his house in good nick. That's maintenance. So we've got to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now notice that it's the unity of the spirit. Jesus said before he went back to heaven... You can read about this in the Gospel of John between chapters 13 and 17. Jesus said he's going to go back to heaven and he says, and it's for your good. And so in, uh, in John chapter 16, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. So Jesus had to go back to heaven or else he couldn't send the Holy Spirit. But now that he's sent the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has work to do in us. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit wants to do is to bring to our remembrance the things that Jesus taught. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit is eager to do with us is to keep us united in Jesus' truth. The Holy Spirit lives to exalt Jesus and to bind his people together. And so... We have this unity in our relationship with Jesus, which is given to us by the Spirit, but the Spirit wants us to to cohere, to hang together, to be united. And so we find there in verse 4, there's one body, that's us, and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There's seven ones in that passage. The things that we all have in common. I don't know if it's significant that seven is the divine number. It may be. But there's seven things that Paul says we all have in common and this is why we've got to be united. It's an abomination when Christians disagree, when Christians disapprove of each other to the point and disintegrate. We're meant to be united. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. That's an awful lot to have in common. And so we've got to express that by walking in a manner worthy of our calling. But with that unity, there's diversity. And so verses uh, 7 and following, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now those gifts are people. There's two other major passages in the New Testament where God's gifts are described. There's Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. But here are the gifts that are described are people. And these are because Jesus has ascended. 
So in verse 11, we're told he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So the apostles, um, the people that were eyewitnesses of Jesus. I'm not sure if the prophets means the Old Testament prophets or New Testament prophets, but anyway, these are the foundation of the church according to Ephesians chapter 2. Evangelists are the people that preach the message. But the shepherds and teachers, now if you're reading the NIV, chances are your translation says pastors and teachers. Um, we've talked about this before, so I don't want to go over old ground too often, but, but uh, pastor is the Latin translation of the Greek word. The English translation is shepherd. It means a person, a, a person who leads, feeds and protects. Um, but in this instance, it's a picture word uh, for the leaders of Christian churches who are meant to lead, feed and protect, not physical sheep but people and they lead feed and protect through their teaching but there's a purpose for all that in verse 12 to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of christ so if someone said to you if you said if they said to you tomorrow uh what did you do yesterday and you said i went to church and they said who's the minister what would your answer be correct answer is we're all ministers right we've got to shed unbiblical ideas right i am no more the minister of this church than you are because minister is another unfortunate latin word and it means servant it's all it means right one of these days i'm going to write a book i think i've told you this before it's going to be called let's translate the bible into english because we've half translated some words pastor's one of them that's a latin word we don't speak a lot of latin these days there's a perfectly good english translation for pastor it's called shepherd it's a picture word minister means servant have we got any servants here we're going to sing brother let me be your servant in just a moment and i hope we mean it so until we all so so what's the purpose of the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for work of ministry that's what you're called to do there's a, a lifetime of good works which god's prepared in advance for all of us to do and the minister one of the pur- purposes of the teaching ministry of the church is to build people up to equip them to serve in the church and the community for how long verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith there's that word again paul wants us to be united and so we've got to keep working towards unity don't be surprised if we fall short every now and again but don't let us use that as an excuse for division again until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of god to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of christ little by little day by day we're meant to be becoming more like jesus verse 14 so that we may no longer be children we need to grow up Um, what's your plan for growing up in the christian faith i watched a bit of the footy last night and uh, the melbourne football club's having to uh, make do without the services of clayton oliver one of our very best players so while the other fellas are out on the ground playing he's in the changing rooms training to get over his hamstring injury and they said they had this footage of him doing these rather extraordinary exercises they said he's a committed professional he'll do whatever it takes to get back on the ground now here's a challenge friends what are you doing to become more like jesus have you got a plan and a program apart from turning up to church we've got to grow up 
We can't stay as we were. We've got to grow. That's the normal trajectory. What happens to a child that won't grow? Dies. So we all love babies. I get a thrill out of holding my little grandchildren, but I don't want them to stay cute forever. I want them to grow up and take their place in the world. Christians start out as babies. They've got to grow. We've been given all the tools we need. Will we use them? What's your plan for, for cooperating with the Holy Spirit in seeing that you grow become, and become more and more like Jesus? Because there's a dangerous world out there. We could be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So in other words, you could be misled. You could be badly taught. You could be derailed from the true gospel of Jesus as it's been revealed by the apostles. So you've got to grow. And in growing, there's safety. When you're growing in the truth, which the Holy Spirit has deposited in the Bible. And so down to verse 15, and as the, our reading ends, we discover that when the body works properly, it grows. When, when we've got a whole bunch of growing Christians coming together in the power of the Holy Spirit, the body works properly and it grows. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this is one of Paul's favourite expressions for what it means to belong to Jesus. We are members of his body. In one body he paid for our sins. But then we become members of his body. Now the term member has been abused also by misuse. And so my sons are members of the MCC. They can go into the member stand of the MCG. Their grandmother put them on the list when they were born and I told her not to worry about me and I've regretted it ever since. Uh, But I can go to the footy as a guest with my sons, right? But they're members of the MCC whether they turn up or not. But they're, they're on a list. But membership of the church means belonging to Christ and his people like the different parts of our body. Now, I've talked about this before, so I don't want to bore you, but I'm going to rub it in again. This is a member, right? That's the technical term for an arm. That's a member, technical term for the finger. If I had a sawmilling accident and lost my arm, the technical description of that is I've been dismembered. You've heard that, haven't you? Right? Have you ever seen a three-legged dog? Right? We've got to admire a three-legged dog, don't we? What a triumph, you know. Here's a dog, poor dog, lost a leg, but they're doing the best they can, but they're not going to win many races. Now, I saw on TV a few years ago a man playing guitar with his feet because he had no arms, but he desperately wanted to play the guitar. So he lay the guitar down on the floor and he taught himself to hold the plectrum between his big toe and his next toe. He taught himself to strum And then he tuned his guitar in such a way that all he had to do was put his foot down across it and he could make chords. And that's impressive, right? Just the determination to get your feet to do things that they really weren't made to do. It's incredibly impressive. And he had a nice voice, so he accompanied himself and he sang. So we might think, well, that's fantastic, but he's no Tommy Emmanuel and he never will be. Because feet can't do what fingers do. 
And no matter how hard he tries, he is never going to become as good a guitarist as Tommy. That's impossible. We can admire him for it, just like we might admire a three-legged dog. Now, the point of this illustration is this. When people withdraw their service from the church, it's like a three-legged dog that has to do without an essential component. It's like trying to play the guitar with your feet. We need everyone to be involved because we are the body of Christ. Now, Paul makes it very clear when he talks about this in Romans and 1 Corinthians, less so here, but the image is obvious, that a body can only work properly when all of the digits, the nose, the ears, the eyes, the, every, every bit's working and doing what it does because feet can't do what hands do and noses can't do what ears do. And so whatever part of the body you are, we need you to contribute to the work that God's prepared in advance for this church to do. So we've been saved by grace because God is merciful. But we've been saved for a reason, because God is demonstrating to the principalities and powers what happens when people who are different are combined together. But we've also been saved for the purpose of extending God's kingdom here and elsewhere. We're not just saved so we can have a cushy life and then go to heaven one day. We've been saved to be part of what God's doing in the world. And what God wants to do in the world is done through churches where everybody contributes what they can contribute. So the gifts of God in Ephesians 4, the gifts of Christ actually, are people. And, and my task and the elders' task is to is to teach and equip people so that you can serve each other and serve your world. Because we're all ministers here. And according to Paul, when each part is working properly, the body grows. But I don't, you wouldn't want Mafra Community Church to be more like a three-legged dog, would you? Well, so, anyway. Chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians talk about the, the glorious forgiveness that God's given us through Jesus. And chapters 4 to the end talk about the obligations that come from being forgiven and saved. And Paul characterises that with a headline statement, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So that's the challenge for us as a church. Now on your news sheet, I've printed this prayer that I'm hoping we might all be able to pray together today and I would encourage you to take it home, put it in your Bible, have it there where you, uh, with your bookmark. This is a prayer authored by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So this is a good prayer to pray for our church. Uh, and so it's from Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 19. And I'd like it if we could all pray this together now as we think about living in a manner worthy of our calling as members of Christ's body here. So have you got it there? Let's pray together. For this reason, we bow before you, Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now when he says we, he means the church. So we're praying that God 
will fill Mafra Community Church with all of his fullness. Please make that your prayer. Um, and, and let's believe that God is uh, wanting to, to answer his prayers in our church.